0: Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. I'm sorry, 9 through 15. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? may have eternal life. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I'm sure many of you know the story of David and Goliath. Goliath, according to today's measurements, was anywhere from about nine feet six inches tall to 10 feet six inches tall. Quite a large, tall man. His armor and weapons are thought to weigh about 200 pounds, So in other words, this is a really huge man. David, who fought Goliath, on the other hand, could not fit into Saul's armor because it was too large. And approximately then, David was a small man, or actually a young boy, a teenager, a young teenager. And so you have this really big man versus this really small boy. And you know the story David, with courage, goes and faces Goliath, slings his stone and hits him dead bullseye onto his head. Goliath falls to the ground. David runs over, picks up that gigantic sword and cuts off his head. You might say that David conquered this great obstacle. He overcame it. Or did he? Because that's how we often hear this story told in Perhaps in the church that you were raised in, that's how I heard it. I learned the lesson of David and Goliath as little people can do great things. All you need to do is work hard, put your very effort and desire and passion into it, and everything will work out. But that's not what David says what happened in this story. Listen to what David says, according to 1 Samuel 17, 46-47. He recounts, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. The Lord will. And I will strike you down and cut off your head, for the battle is not David's, not mine, but the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So clearly, for David, the answer was not about trying hard, being small but fighting with perseverance or skill or talent. Instead, David knew quite well that his only hope to defeat Goliath was going to be God and God alone. You know, the rest of the Bible tells exactly the same story. Every single story is essentially this story, from the beginning to the end. It ultimately culminates at the cross of Christ where sin is not overcome by our hard work and effort. Our Bible studies, our prayer weeks, our church attendance, our missions trips, none of those things overcomes the power of sin and death. According to David's story and the rest of the Bible story, the overcoming of obstacles comes not from us, but from God himself. Because sin is too great. Satan is too powerful. The world is too strong in its temptations. You cannot overcome these obstacles due to our own will and skill and understanding. And so we're going to look this week at these obstacles to the new birth. Obstacles so powerful and so strong that you cannot say that a person can be born again simply by their effort. These obstacles are first, ignorance in verse 9, second, obstinance in verses 10 through 11, and then third, unbelief in verse 12. And next week, we'll look at this same passage and see specifically in verses 13 through 15 the opportunity to actually overcome, overtake these obstacles, how it all happens. But this week, first, the obstacles. And the first obstacle we're going to look at is ignorance, according to verse 9. Nicodemus, who's approaching Jesus, says, how can these things be? How can this happen? Again, if you're not born again, You can think of Jesus, well, as an exquisite moral teacher, as someone who is smart, intelligent, skillful, someone you might say has real moral principles for your life to live a healthy, happy home and family. But one thing you will not find Jesus is Savior. You can find him as a teacher, but you will never turn to him as Christ the Savior, because your instinct will be, I don't need a Savior. Everything's good on my own. Or if it isn't so good, I can work it out by myself. Nicodemus was this man, a good man, an upstanding citizen who could not see Jesus as Savior, but thought well of him enough. He was highly educated. He knew more of the Hebrew scriptures than any person in this room more than many Old Testament scholars of today, but we're told that he's still living in darkness. The Apostle Paul describes someone like Nicodemus this way in Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance, ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So Paul's saying you can be religious, Zealous, like Nicodemus, but still ignorant. Ignorance is so often an excuse of self-centeredness. Because the I didn't know excuse is often the I didn't want to know. If you are driving through a 25-mile-per-hour zone and a police officer pulls you over, If your instinct is to say, I didn't know it was 25 miles, is it that you truly didn't know, or is it that you didn't want to know? And the instinct is to think is, as long as I don't know, I'm off the hook. I'm not guilty. But that's not how it works in our world. If a young toddler, and you have children, and if you have multiple uh, children, if a young toddler boy rips the toy from his baby sister, so a three-year-old from a, you know, a one-year-old rips the toy out of her hands and she starts crying. But let's say you've never actually said, hey, don't rip the toy out of her hands. Let me ask you something. Is, she, is he guilty of doing something wrong? Your instinct might think, no, because I never said it. Because the law shows wrongness. But we see in scripture that actually wrongness, evil, sin is not rooted on the fact that there is a law. It's rooted on the conscience that God has given to each one of us. Romans 1.20, Paul describes it this way. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. By whom? By us. By people. And this is anyone Christian, non-Christian. And it's this divine nature, it's been clearly perceived where? Not just in creation, which I think a lot of people tend to think Romans 1.20 comes from, and it does describe creation, but it also means in other people. We see God's divine nature because every person, every human being is created in God's image. And so because they've been created in God's image and made, have been made, they are without excuse, They are without excuse. Ignorance is not an excuse. God's nature, his character, it's all revealed ultimately in the conscience, the human conscience. So we refuse to murder not because there is a a statute in the law that says you're not allowed to murder but rather because there's something instinctually that God has hardwired in our nature, in our image that says you must not murder. The murdering comes, um, as we know, as Jesus says, from a, an angry heart ultimately. And that heart is in all of us. So ignorance, it's simply another way of describing a person who says, I want to do whatever is right in my own eyes, and I also want to look good in the process, so I'm going to claim ignorance. When in reality, it's nothing more than another way of describing the sin. That's why Jesus so strongly rebukes Nicodemus when he asks, how can this be? Because if, as we're going to see in the next chapter, John chapter 4, if the immoral woman can see Christ as Savior, if the leper who has lived outside the camp can turn to Christ and see Christ as Savior, then this teacher of the law has no excuse. So ignorance, though, is his obstacle. Now, we move to the next hindrance or the next obstacle, and it's a progressive um, movement. In other words, these three obstacles progress in its nature because it moves from ignorance to obstinance in verses 10 and 11. No one is merely ignorant. Hardness of heart is eventually intentional. The person who believes himself to be good enough, who has no need for Christ, if you ask such a person, why do you not follow Jesus? Probably in some fashion or form, their answer is going to be, I don't need him. Everything in my life is good enough. That's not just ignorance, that's willful hardness. Jesus calls Nicodemus on this in verses 10 and 11. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. What a startling question by Jesus, humbling Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand? I mean, wouldn't it have been right in the world's eyes and the way that the world thinks of it is to say, who are you? You're a carpenter. To tell me, a teacher of Israel, how dare you question my authority? That's how the rest of the Pharisees thought, right? But here's Jesus saying that. And there is something of a humility that, as we saw about Nicodemus that could even receive such a thing and still be okay to hear it. But Jesus does question He questions his assumption because he says, you're a teacher of Israel, of the whole nation. But is Nicodemus couldn't see what should have been so clear to him because if he really saw Jesus as Savior, as Son of God, as God himself, that Jesus came to bear witness to what we have seen what Jesus has seen and he doesn't receive that testimony. What does that mean? It means that Jesus has seen things that no one has ever seen. Jesus has seen the very stars being created. Jesus has seen the magma under the earth's crust. Jesus has seen Nicodemus's DNA, every single helix and knows every single protein and every single chemical reaction that takes place in Nicodemus's body. He has seen what one million years from today will be like. He has seen the thought that you and I have before we even think that thought, he knows we're going to think it. Not action, thoughts. So if this is who, Jesus, uh, who Nicodemus is confronting, can you imagine why Jesus is so... He's almost sounding frustrated. Not really, but... And I think you get this idea because, for example, if you are a parent and you have teenagers or young children, maybe even adult children, if you give your kids advice, which is generally the case of most parents, they give their kids advice, and let's say your kids dismiss that advice, how do you feel with that? Obviously frustrated, sort of exasperated. If you tell your child and you say, you know what? if you just study hard enough and lay off the video games, you won't flunk the test. But let's say they do. They say, ah, forget it. I don't need to listen to you. So they flunk their test, get a D for the course. Now their future is hindered. And how do you respond to that as a parent? Exasperated because you have this, I told you so. Or let's say you have a friend who is dating a guy who you know is bad news, and it's so obvious, but she just goes headlong into it. And the guy just completely is a buffoon. And so she is devastated. She breaks up, heartbroken, just going through really hard times. Isn't your instinct to think, I I told you this already. You could have saved yourself a lot of heartache. I mean, this is us. We have only limited knowledge of our world, of people. And so when we give advice and it actually rings true, it's so easy to feel frustrated and exasperated. Well, how much more the Lord who knows everything and he's saying, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel. You don't even understand these things. I'm, I'm showing, I'm bearing witness to this. And yet you don't want to receive it. You don't want to believe it. Because even since we've been infants, We have been an obstinate people. Isaiah describes it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And if you've ever seen sheep and you watch videos of sheep, just go onto YouTube and watch. You see, they scatter. I mean, they just go off on their own. And the shepherd, or usually sheepdogs, come along. And they sort of force the the sheep to go into these patterns, the herds. It's because sheep go astray. They want to do whatever is right in their own eyes. The obstinance is there. Sociologist Alan Bloom, he describes history this way. He says, men always thought they were right. And that led to wars, persecutions, slavery, xenophobia, racism, and chauvinism. The point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is not to think you are right at all. This is a non-Christian sociologist. But he has what we see in Romans 120, common grace, wisdom to say, you know what? You have to first see that things are not right because the impact of this obstinance are some of the worst things about our world. There has to be a sense of, I'm not right. And that's exactly what Jesus is pressing Nicodemus on. You're not right. You're not the person you think you are don't do what is right in your own eyes. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't even accept the new birth. You don't understand. It's, it's very difficult to overcome an obstinate heart. I think you see that even in the rearing of families, how hard it is to overcome obstinance. Well, my friends, that's our heart. We've been like that too. And so it goes from ignorance to obstinance and then it moves to the greatest obstacle of all, unbelief verse 12 it's sort of the natural conclusion of obstinance verse 12 says if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things the person who has a hardened heart cannot see Christ will not see Christ no matter how many worship services she attends no matter how many trips to Africa or to San Francisco to serve the poor no matter how much he sacrifices for his family, no matter how often you come to church and teach youth or children, no matter what you do, no matter how much you give, all of these things cannot cause you to be born again. And here's the reason why. Because they're earthly things on its own. On its face, they are earthly things. And what I mean by earthly is they can be done by you. They're actually physical things. You can see them. You can, by your effort and hard work, by your commitment and will, you can decide to do these things. And anything that you can physically do shows you that it's not what actually causes the new birth. Because you can actually do those things without trusting Christ at all. Every one of those things. You can be in ministry without trusting Christ, and it happens. You can be serving the Lord here, but not serving the Lord. You're serving yourself. So anything that you physically do, it's possible to do it without Christ. And I want to go back to Luke, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 again. But this time, we're going to add the next verse, verse 19. I'm going to read it for you. Listen to what it says. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness, obstinance of their heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That progression in ver- to verse 19 is, is the unbelieving heart, the calloused heart. It really is this progression. In other words, if you remain ignorant enough, leading to obstinate enough, getting you to a hardened heart, there's a callousness that takes place. Let me illustrate this. I uh, learned how to play the guitar when I was in college. And so when I first started, my um, I used a guitar that my mom bought through a catalog. It was probably about $40. I always called it the toy, toy guitar. And basically it had nylon strings. If you know anything about guitar, and I put on the, the regular acoustic guitar strings, and the action, you probably... The distance of the string to the neck was so big. It was like this big. Okay, it's exaggeration. It was really high. And so in order to uh, press the string chords, I it, it just killed. And any of you first learned how to play guitar, you know, because your your fingertips are very sensitive. I mean, that's why they do torture there. Now they rip off your fingernails. They stick like metal spikes into your fingers. I know that sounds too morbid, but this is an area that really hurts. So when you're first learning how to play guitar, it, it's very painful. But as you keep on doing it, calluses start forming. And I think you, some of you know that because you play an instrument. And what, what I noticed about my calluses is that they were really ugly because they would form layers of skin on it and it would be crusty and yellow. And I know, uh, sorry about this, but it would just get bigger and bigger, wider and wider oh boy, this is, but at least it didn't hurt anymore. But that's not the end of it all. What happened is that slowly but surely after time, the calluses, those crusty parts fell off. And you know what happened is that it went back to the way that my fingers looked prior to me playing guitar, but it didn't hurt. So if you look at my fingers, they're actually not hard anymore. And they're not crusted over, they look exactly the same, but they're still calloused because the nerve endings feel like they're dead. There's nothing there. And I want to use that metaphor to describe the obstinate calloused heart that way. See, the calloused heart doesn't look terrible. The calloused heart can look beautiful. In other words, it is possible for a pastor, and you might have heard this, to be preaching in front of thousands and to be smiling and preaching about the gospel and counseling while they're having an extramarital affair. And we get shocked by that, but the reason that happens is because of a calloused heart. The calloused heart doesn't look crusted and ugly. The calloused heart can look beautiful, smiling, lover of Christ, talking about Jesus all the time. But then you go back home and you're stuck on your computer looking at porn every day. That's the callous heart. It's a hidden heart. It's a deceptive heart. It's a secret heart. And that's the danger that Paul is warning of in Ephesians 4.19 is that you go from ignorance, I didn't know, to hardness and obstinance, I don't care, to callous, I believe in Jesus. You have a smile, but deep down, it is black as anything. The nerve endings are dead. There's no feeling at all. You just want to do what you want to do. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Whenever there's a discovery of sin, God is showing you his kindness. And sometimes that is incredibly painful. But only when you get to the lowest and uttermost darkest reaches of your own heart and people care enough to say, I'm going to walk alongside with you through this, even knowing how dreadful you are, only then can that unbelief be broken and the calluses be stripped away. And once again, you feel the experience of God's grace, the watering of God's grace. But that takes seeing the world through spiritual eyes or what Jesus calls seeing and believing heavenly things, not just what you see. What we see, again, is if I am up here preaching, doing all these things, but back at home, there's a secret life, then all these earthly things mean nothing. So it is absolutely dependent on what happens in our heart and ultimately spiritually speaking for example when jesus came to lazarus's house after lazarus died martha comes to jesus and says in john 11:21 lord if you had been here my brother would not have died that that sentence has a condition lord if you had been here so martha's assumption is jesus had to physically be present for there to be a healing but there was a, a guy earlier, his, he, his, he's not named, but he's a centurion, a Roman soldier, and his servant is sick. And he takes his horse and meets Jesus, runs up to him, and says, Lord, if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. So this centurion, who did not grow up knowing anything about God and the scriptures, has more faith than someone like Martha and like Nicodemus who believes that Jesus has to be physically present in order for a work of God to happen. See, faith is not about seeing. Faith comes from being born again, from having spiritual eyes, from being brought from spiritual death to spiritual resurrection. Unbelief keeps us from being born again, but despite the absolute impossibility for a dead person to rise, Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. And that was so far beyond the scope of what Martha could ever imagine. In her mind, Jesus had to physically be present while Lazarus is alive, and then he can be healed. But Jesus's whole point is, I'm going to wait four days until he's in the grave And then when I come, I'm going to raise him from the grave to to make it known that there is nothing that can stop our God, our Lord. The battle truly belongs to the Lord. There are so many areas perhaps in your life that your instinct is to think this cannot be done. There's no way. And sometimes the Lord brings us to that place because he wants to show you his glory his power, his presence. But our unbelief always says, no, it can't be done. And there are so many areas. And I really ask that you consider, is there an area in your life that you have this instinct to think God can't do it? I think a lot of times it's regarding especially people's salvation. That should be a shocker because if there's one thing that only God can do, it's to save someone. But again, our instinct is to think well, that person is so far gone that there's no way they can be saved. Maybe that person has taken certain drugs in this time of transitioning to uh, transition gender from one gender to another, and they're so strung up on these drugs that there's no way they could ever turn to Christ. Or maybe someone who is in a coma. Or someone who is old and who has lived a whole life of anger. Maybe that's your mom or your dad and they are just crusted over in hardness. If Jesus can raise Lazarus from the grave, then he can raise your loved one and open their heart. But you have to believe. And ultimately, it is God's sovereign will, but we know that God can do this. So if Lazarus rose from the grave, if Jesus rose from the grave, that means that anything can happen, that we can be raised, and it has happened. Many of you have been born again. Jesus has not left us completely to ourselves. He has given us an opportunity, an opportunity we're going to look at next week, an outlandish opportunity, because Christ had to be lifted up in order for us to be born again. That was the only condition, but it was one that was incredibly difficult. Was Nicodemus ignorant of the Lord? Was he obstinate? Was he struggling with unbelief? He absolutely was. But along the way, Nicodemus was struck. And so Jesus' call in John 3, 7, you must be born again. It left Nicodemus no room for traditionalism, moralism, No longer could he think, as long as I'm good enough, as long as I do this and that, then I will be saved. And if you think that way, then you need to look at Nicodemus. He comes from a Jewish heritage, a better heritage than all of us, unless you're Jewish, because he's of the chosen people. But even that is not enough to cause someone to be born again. As we see in verse 15 of chapter 3, so must, the Son of Man, be lifted up. You must be born again. And the amazing thing is that Jesus provides the means by which that must is fulfilled. So must the Son of Man. It's not, you must be born again. You must now go to church every Sunday. You must read the Bible. You must go on missions. You must be a good son or daughter. No, none of that is going to fulfill that you must be born again. The only must that fulfills it is verse 15. The son of man must be lifted up. And what is the next verse after John 3.15? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You cannot leave this conversation with Nicodemus thinking I can know Jesus by my will, efforts, decisions, work, what I do. You cannot read this chapter seeing that it's all about what we accomplish ourselves to know Christ. To be born again, Jesus uses this metaphor, and I take it to parallel directly to our physical birth. There's no way that you, as when you were zero years old, where you're just about to be born and you're thinking to yourself, all right, it's time now, I'm going to be born. You know, someone had to push you out or if you had a C-section, had to pull you out. But you did not decide in that moment, it's time now. And you didn't push yourself out. There was You were helpless. It required your mom to say, you're coming now. And that's the thing is our Lord, he is the one who gives us life but the answer and the means by which this happens is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, which we will again look at in a few weeks. So this week upcoming is our prayer week, our prayer and fasting week. This prayer and fasting week is not a requirement to be a good Christian. It is a response. It is, you know, I I have been so richly blessed by you, Jesus. I wanna come together with the church and intercede. I wanna experience God's grace. I want, to, I want to remind myself in the beginning of this year, because this year is filled with all sorts of worries, all sorts of decisions, and I need to set it aright. My instinct is to go my own way or to do what is strong enough for me, and I want to be with God's people. That's why we're doing this. It's a refreshing time, or as Acts describes it, a time of refreshing so that you prep your heart, not because God loves you more if you do it. God already loves you if you're in Christ it's because just like any child who is loved by the Lord, but by their parents says, I want to be with them. I want to be with mom and dad. I want to be right by your side and drawing right where you are. I want to be right by your side and just holding you and feeling your presence. That's what this week is about. And that's what we do every week at the table. So we really hope you join us this week as well as to this table as we come reminded that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our instinct is to believe that there is something we can do to be saved. But we see in this chapter with Nicodemus, the more he tried to do things, the more it actually hardened his heart. There is a surrender that is required and a knowledge that only you can do the work of saving us. For anyone, O Lord, in this room who has not placed their hope in Christ, who perhaps feels no need for you, may those words strike hard, you must be born again. It's not, you must be a good person. You must be someone who is morally righteous. You must provide for your family. Those all are but fruits. Instead, it's you must be born again. If there's anyone, O Lord, who does not know you, we ask that you would intervene, O Lord. May they not leave this place left on their own. Change their hearts, O God. Show them their need for you, Lord Jesus. And for those perhaps who have been confused, who have believed that, God, you do not love them enough, you have not cared for them enough, because of perhaps difficulties or trials they're facing, may they always go back to this reality that Jesus, you were lifted up on that cross so that we might be set free from the law of sin and death. So we come to this table, O Lord, recognizing our need for Christ and knowing full well that that has been accomplished through the cross of Christ and the resurrection. We've been raised with him forever and ever. And so we thank you, Father, for the promises of your word. You are good to us. In Jesus' name we pray.